Good morning, everyone. I am excited about today. It is the last day that I'm gonna have to be speaking to you and only looking at my face. <laughs> I am thrilled. Even if there's just one person in the building next week, it's gonna be better than looking at my ugly mug for the whole Sunday morning gathering. I'm looking forward to that, but I'm looking forward too to also getting back into the Gospel of John. So next Sunday, we are gonna pick up or we're going to begin, rather, our, our series through the Gospel of John by actually looking at the first verses in chapter 1. So what we're going to do today is we are going to review kind of an overview of the Gospel of John. And my goal here is to get you excited about the Gospel of John, uh, to get reinvigorated. We did this already, a version of this already but that was seven weeks ago, eight weeks ago now, um, that we just got really excited about doing it, and then everything happened, and we shut the whole thing down, and have been off studying different corners of God's Word, so we're going to be looking at John, because my, my, my goal is, as with any preaching and any teaching, is for, for you to come away having known something. Because if preaching, if Bible teaching, if your church, whatever is happening at your church is not helping you study the Bible better on your own, then we are failing. We're not just missing the mark. We're not just, wow, well, we're good at other stuff. We are failing at the mission. What is the end of the Great Commission? The first part of it, we all know pretty well. The first part of it is to make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We get that, send people out, share the gospel with those who've never heard it, and, and let the Lord bring them to faith. But the last part of the Great Commission, what does it say? It says, and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. So after they believe, then we teach. And then those who teach, then they go out to tell others who don't yet believe. We have to teach. Otherwise, we're not going to know who God is. Jesus says in the Gospel of John, we're going to talk about it in a little bit later, but he says when he's praying for his disciples, the day before he dies, John chapter 17, he's praying before his disciples. It's called the high priestly prayer. And he says to his heavenly father, with whom he is one in one God, he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. How are any of us going to be sanctified? Meaning growing in holiness, growing in Christ-likeness. Well, it's only going to be in the truth. Well, how do we know what the truth is? The scriptures, your word is the truth. So that's why we're going to do this. And so that's why I wanted to take the time to study, the, uh, look at an overview of the gospel of John one more time um, with a little bit of a different flavor to it. Uh, so that we can be prepared to study the Bible, because that's our source. That's our only standard for, for life and practice, for faith and practice. Faith and obedience is the scripture. 66 books, two testaments, one author, God. Um, so with the Gospel of John, we're going to be, our theme verse this morning is chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, and I'll tell you why here in a little bit. But the Gospel of John, we take a little bit of coming into uh, to, to understand, like, what is it that we're looking at? What are, we, what are we trying to do with this? The Gospel of John is so wonderful 
because I mean, just think about if you grew up in the in the church, what were the bulk of your memory verses from? They were probably from the Gospel of John, because the concepts and the vocabulary in that gospel they're so attainable to a child. But yet, if you've read it as an adult and you sit and ponder some of the implications of those simple statements, you can be stuck for a while. You could be hung up for a while. One commentator wrote about the Gospel of John is that it has profound simplicity and acceptable or accessible depth. Now, if something is deep, that usually means it's not very accessible, right? Gold's deep in the earth, and so it's not easily accessible. But yet this commentator said that it's death is accessible and profound simplicity. A lot of times we think of the word profound or when somebody's being profound, it's somewhat um, cloudy or, or misty, maybe even mystical what they're saying. And that's how, oh, that sounds really profound. But John's profound for his simplicity. Now, it sounds like a contradiction, but when we get into the Gospel of John, you really start seeing that for what it is. So this morning, what I want to do is reintroduce us to the Gospel of John um, and give us tracks to run on. Again, kind of like what I said um, two months ago, almost two and a half months ago, was we're going we're gonna to lay out the trail map before we go sprinting down the trail. We're going to look at the trail map, see where they all go and, and where the main hubs are and how one trail connects to another trail so that when we're on it, we know where we are. And so that's what we're going to do with the Gospel of John. We're going to look at the whole book so that when we're in it, we know where we are and what the significance is. And therefore, we can maybe draw, hopefully draw, better implications for our life, our understanding, and our own relationship with the God of the universe. So we're going to look at it um, through a couple of outline points. The first outline point is we need to understand what a gospel is. When we say the Gospel of John or the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke. We're not talking about the same gospel when we say, I'm sharing the gospel. So somebody said, oh, yeah, I share the gospel with a coworker. What we don't mean is that that person read to them the entirety of the book of John, right? Or the book of Mark or Luke or Matthew. Uh, what we're saying is that, that there's, a, there's a genre of scripture called the gospel. It's a particular genre. Now, if that sounds intimidating to you, don't let it be intimidating because you work in those categories in your minds all the time. That we read different things and we take in different information uh, in different ways. I don't watch a documentary in the same way I watch a video that I filmed on my phone of my kids. I don't watch a Hollywood production for this in the same way that I watch a high school play. I don't read uh, the encyclopedia the same way I read the grocery list, and I don't read the newspaper in the same way I would read a text message from a loved one. So we already work in genres. It's just taking that um, just kind of understood reality that we work with, just kind of it's almost um, innate in us, and then putting it into the Bible. Because if we don't do that, then we're going to end up kind of confused. So the Gospels are historical narrative. So John is a historical narrative, meaning that it's telling a story that happened in history. And there's lots of genres like that in the Bible. So the Old Testament has a lot of this. Think of like Kings and Chronicles and Samuel. And think of uh, Genesis. It's a historical narrative. These things happen in history, and here's the story, narrative. It follows a flow. 
but they're not just the gospels i mean are not just biographies about jesus in the technical sense because if they are biographies then we have as there's the the holders of literature uh in on the planet earth as human beings we have shortchanged the most important being in the universe if jesus his biography is four books that we can fit in a in a booklet like that then we've we've shortchanged them i mean i have my office is full of biographies and they're all longer than jesus is so jesus is a biography but it's different than that it's it's a uh, an ancient style of it. It's called a bios. See, a biography, like we know it, that just merely tells the story of the person's life. It's like, hey, you don't know who, uh, like John Calvin, or how do you point with the reverse? There it is. You don't know who he is in history, so you pick up a book about him, and it tells you who he is, where he lived, how he grew up, what he did, why he mattered, and what's the reason for writing this book about him. Like, why, why was he important enough to have that happen. It just tells the details of their lives. And if that's what the Gospels are, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then then they've missed it. I mean, they neglect Jesus's childhood almost entirely. You got 11 verses in Luke 2 of Jesus's childhood when he's 12 years old. 11. 11 sentences at best in a sense. That's not really good biography work at all. Uh, and they don't describe his appearance, his mannerisms, not much about it, even his daily rhythms, his favorite foods. I mean, none of that. His education. It, like, we, we don't have even very limited interaction that we see of him with his siblings and parents. His father is not even in it after he's born. Joseph's nowhere to be found. So that's not good biography, the way that we understand biography in the modern world. And, and not even all of his miracles are recorded. Like if you were going to record uh, Jesus' life, a guy who does miracles because he is God in flesh, wouldn't you just make sure you at least had all those? And the, and the Bible freely admits that it doesn't. John says in John 21, 25, uh, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written doesn't even contain everything that he did, not just miracles, but anything that he did. That his 33 years of life, it would take more than more books in the world has to record all that. So they, they admit that, the, the, the Gospels do. So they're not like a biography, they're more like a bios, B-I-O-S, is an ancient narrative style. And what it focuses in on is the key event in an individual's life and then the teaching that surrounded that. So that individual, the key event, the, the, the biggest thing about them, that, that event, that moment, or that season in their life, and then the teaching that surrounds that, that that individual taught or, or did. A lot of times that's kings or nobles or warriors or whatever, and it just focuses on one war or one conflict or one um, governmental issue or edict. But in Jesus's life, this is the death and resurrection, right? That, that it's all building towards that. The majority of his life is, or the majority of the gospels is just three years. Three years of his life. That's it. Because it's just trying to get you the main idea. It's not so concerned with telling you if he was 5'11 or 6'3. 
is not so concerned with saying that he really uh, liked to to eat meat in the morning and then vegetables the rest of the day. That was kind of his habit, or that he's left-handed or right-handed. That doesn't really talk about that kind of stuff. It's not concerned with that because the four gospels. As a, as a genre in the Bible, they're trying to convince you of something. I've heard one pastor, theologian, say that, that the Gospel of John in particular is, is uh, propaganda. It's just sanctified, divine propaganda. It's trying to convince you of something, trying to get you to believe something, that they're trying to persuade the reader of something. It's not just a data dump. Just here's a bunch of facts about somebody that was special. It's trying to convince you of something. And I think you can think of Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as extra long evangelistic tracks. I mean, a lot of times we get those little tracks, and they're just a couple of pages. They're just real thin, and they're real small. Um, but that's what the Gospels are. I mean, you reduced down the Son of God's life, purpose, and message into, for John, 21 chapters? And we're not even talking about like novel chapters. A lot of the chapters you can see when you open a whole chapter on two pages. That you've reduced it down. So it is tracked like in that sense. And it hinges all upon the birth, life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. And what that means for humanity. Now John differs from the other three gospels somewhat drastically. Now, drastic seem, it can have like a negative context, but just think um, extremely or, or, or seriously or um, a degree of separation in a sense. So we get four gospel accounts from four individuals in, uh, uh, about one person's life. And that's fantastic. I mean, that's what we would want. That's what anybody would want if they were trying to understand what was true and they weren't there. You would want to ask as many people as you could what really happened. What was it really like? That's why in courtrooms they have lots of eyewitnesses come. And the eyewitnesses' accounts are all unique but never contradictory. So it wouldn't be weird for somebody who witnessed a car accident, for instance, for one to say, yeah, um, it was raining and it was about 5 o'clock and the car spawned and did this and crashed into the wall. And then another account would say there was fire everywhere and the car was against the wall. You would hear details from different people. So what we get, another pastor I heard say, is we get Jesus's life in surround sound. You're picking up all the nuances from the speakers that are coming all around by having four individuals write that account, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, but have four individuals making a unique contribution to our understanding of the Messiah. And if there were going to be duplicates of anything in the Bible, any subject, any individual person, then it would, should certainly be about the Messiah, right? Should certainly be about the Redeemer. Because the whole Bible is building to. So it makes sense that there's four of them, and it makes sense that each one offers something unique, but never contradictory. They each have a different perspective. So Matthew, he, it's, it's the gospel of the king. Jesus is king. Mark is the gospel of the servant that Jesus came to serve. Luke is the gospel of man, that, that Jesus was truly a man. And then John is the gospel of God, that, that Jesus was truly God. That's, that's going to be a massive concept in the gospel of John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic 
Gospels. I don't know if you've ever heard that term be thrown around before, uh, but that when somebody says the synoptics, they're referring to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the reason why is that's you break that word down, sin with optic eye, with one eye, with the same eye, same perspective, same view. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they even, like, deep in seminary, the weeds, people start thinking about, well, maybe Mark was written first, and then Matthew and Luke took from Mark and kind of used that and then built off of that a little bit. And, and whether or not any of that happened, what we do know for sure, and anybody can tell if you just read through them, is like, wow, you're following a lot of the same timeline, and a lot of the same events are happening to varying degrees of, of being expounded upon or not, Mark being the shortest and Matthew being the longest. Uh, but John was different. John was written much later than uh, the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's written about A.D. 85 or 90, um, towards the end of John's life. John dies around A.D. 90, and he has an entirely unique approach for his writing. Uh, so, for instance, he uses simpler language and a limited vocabulary. Now, when I want to feel really competent in my Greek skills, when I pick up my Greek New Testament, I go read John. John makes me feel like a scholar because I know all those words and I can figure them out. I can look them up and like, oh, okay, I get this. Now, when I want to feel incompetent, I go read Hebrews because it's super hard or Luke and Acts because Luke was, was very intelligent and very educated and wrote high level Greek. John writes simple, uses a limited vocabulary. There's not a lot of words in there that are one time only in the New Testament. Luke uses tons of words that only he brings up and uses in the Greek in the New Testament. So John's simple. He also doesn't record any exorcisms, no demons cast out in the entire book of John. And he doesn't have any of Jesus's parables. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all have parables. John has none. And, and, you know, even as far as miracles go, uh, the only miracle that's recorded in all four of them is the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, besides the resurrection, the greatest miracle of all time. Uh, but Jesus' miracles that he performed walking around, the, the feeding of the 5,000, that's the only one that's in all four of them. John records uh, several that are, are in some of them and some of them in others, but the only one that's in all four. And, and John also uniquely... He records long discourses that Jesus has with people. We'll talk more about that later. And long conversations with individuals, not so much in the synoptics. And the other thing that John does, unique, different from them, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that he does not, he's not as married to a timeline. He's not following like, this day, and then this day, and then this day, and then this day, or, or the Jewish calendar. Yeah, this feast, and then this feast, and then Passover, and this feast. And he's not so much involved in that. Those markers are, are in there, but he's not as concerned about keeping up a, a, a very accurate timeline. It's more like this moment, and then this instant, and then this scene. He, he kind of is walking through that. Think about it like this. I used this illustration before, but if you get a second chance to use an illustration, it's always good because you can make it sound a lot better. The Synoptic Gospels are like three directors making a documentary on 9-11. And 9-11, uh, we know what happened. They would There wouldn't be any you know contradictions and facts and things. This is what happened. This is what was going on. This is what it was like on the ground. And they would have... Uh, 
a unique perspective on it. They would come at it from a different angle. We would, we would get that. But if they were documentary film directors, they would follow certain things. Like they, they would have a timeline they'd be going through and uh, because they, you know, you want to be polished. You want your final product to be coherent and make sense. You want the people to come away with certain. So you're following certain things that, that directors would. And that is different than a friend who lived through it telling you all about it. Now, I did have a friend who lived through it. This guy who, uh, older than me, but he was in college when my dad was living, uh, we were all living in a college station, and he was in the ministry that my dad was leading, the Bible studies. And then when 9-11 hit, he was in New York working as a financier, and he described to all of us what it was like being in Manhattan when the towers are coming down and he's running from you know, the billowing smoke and the, the broken building pieces and everything and ducking behind um, a benches like bus benches and stuff. And that account is, is different. Now it doesn't contradict anything that I could watch in a documentary because they were all talking about the exact same instance. But, there's a little bit of a different feel from somebody who's just telling you what it was like to experience it. And not that Matthew, Mark, and Luke aren't doing that, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke have more structure and John's kind of that more feel that he's, he's coming across like this is what it was like to live through it. And, and, and that's what we're getting with John. Of course, we, we want those documentaries because they're going to know things and bring light to things that, like about 9-11 that my friend Matt never would have known because he was on the ground when it was happening and he's just telling us first person and he didn't have the luxury of, of time going by and all these other things like that and reading research and digging into other things. So we, we need all of them. None of them's better or worse than the others. But that's just the feel of what's coming across to us in John. Now, here's John's theme verse. And if we don't know the theme verse, then we don't really know what he's trying to do. Look at John's theme verse in John 20, verses 30 and 31. Verse, he comments about the miracles. Now, Jesus did many other signs. That's John's word for miracles. Uh, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Now, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the theme and the theme verse or the thesis verse. Now, a lot of us, we didn't like English class. We tuned out and all that stuff. I'm writing a thesis. I don't know what that means. I, I don't necessarily get it. And, and to be fair, in a lot of our educational systems and just whatever's going on, we don't really get taught how to read critically. Like we just, we, of course, we can read. But I mean, we can read and get information into us. We, we know how to do that. But read critically in the sense that every book, every magazine, every newspaper article, every movie is written to convince you of something. Or, or to make you come away with something. A movie director wants you to feel something at the end. A book author is trying to convince you of an argument if it's nonfiction. Even if it's a weight loss book, they're trying to convince you this is the best method to lose weight. Otherwise, they wouldn't have written the book. And, and a lot of times what we don't do is, 
is look at a text and try to read it critically. Like, what are you trying to get at? Like, what, what's your point for writing? What are you trying to have come to reality in me? And John just says it outright here at the end of the book. It, it's written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's He has an agenda, and he's not ashamed of it. And God's not ashamed of it. He's writing for a purpose. It's not just like divine drippings of wisdom coming down, take it or leave it. No, he's trying to convince us of something, that God is the ultimate author. And he has the point of revealing himself as the creator, redeemer, God of the universe, who alone is worthy of all glory and honor. And that entering into a relationship with him that is not judgment, but grace comes through belief in his son. So John's theme and purpose is clear for us. He's to try to convince us that Jesus is the Christ and eternal life is found by believing in him. This is not sterile truth. John's not just trying to tell you a bunch of things are true, but may or may not have any impact on you. That We're around that constantly. I mean, you could I could bring up the periodic table of elements and tell you why they are all what they are and what they mean and what happens when you mix them together. And that's all true. But to me, as a non-scientific dummy, that doesn't mean anything to me. That's irrelevant to my life. That doesn't matter to me. I, I don't care. It's true, but it doesn't matter to me. John is saying it's true that Jesus is the Son of God, and it's true that salvation is through him alone, and I am trying to convince you to believe in him. Knowing the truth doesn't save anyone. Trusting in the truth, Jesus being the truth, capital T, is the only hope of salvation for anyone. I mean, I've been reminded of that lately, like all of us were stuck, you know, inside more and stuck at home more doing things. And uh, real stories fascinate me. Uh, and we were watching the, the docuseries thingy on, uh, on, on David Koresh and the Branch Davidians in Waco. So I started doing my own research on him. That guy knew the Bible, the content of the Bible, back and forth. But knowing the truth, knowing true things doesn't save you because you can take true things and use them for your own evil purposes. You can take the truth and use it as a weapon to manipulate. You can do that with anything. So knowing the truth, just being able to recite true things does not save anyone. Any Hollywood movie director or politician or uh, public persona or college professor, they could tell you nuts and bolts what the Christian gospel is, but that doesn't mean that they're saved by it. You have to believe it and trust in it. See, John's, John's um, agenda is so obvious. By my count, there's 21, at least 21, individual either verses or just a couple of verses um, in John. So moments, instances in the gospel of John where he lays out plainly the path to salvation and eternal life. 21 different times. And 21 different passages that can stand alone as gospel presentations. His agenda is obvious. That's what he's trying to do, to convince you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why throughout the history of the church, 
they would John, if you had anything, have John. Because if you can print anything, print John. Because you can give that out to anybody and they can read it. And that's the point of the book is to convince you to believe. So now we get off of his theme and let's get onto the structure of the book. That's important for us. I found for me the easier ways to come about structure is just through key words. Because we can go through a book of the Bible and find words that happen over and over again. And we can take out our colored pencil or a highlighter or a marker or a pen. And we can mark those words in certain ways. And then we can kind of see things. That's what helps me. My Bible is all marked up. And I mean, just even on, on this page, like I just, I, I mark the key words because I, I want to be able to, to find them. And then to see like, oh, wow, like I got a lot of purple clouds and purple cloud is the word belief. And that happens six times here in one paragraph like that. Something's happening with that word. So that, that's a helpful thing for me. And I hope it'd be helpful for you as well. Uh, and it's, it's, and it's a great skill to develop in the gospel of John because his language is so simple and he is intentionally so redundant. He's trying to repeat himself over and over again because he's got one point and one message. It's on purpose. He's trying to make you see that and to keep it straightforward. So there's a handful of six, six keywords brought out. There's others, but we're just going to do six. Uh, and if they're repeated multiple times and the number of times they're repeated should tell us something. So 21 chapters, the word believe occurs 98 times. 98. That's the theme of the book, right? To get you to believe that Jesus is the son of God and that, that eternal life is found in him alone by believing in him. So that's the point of the book. 98 times make blindingly obvious. Now the word true or truth is in the 99 times or truly, uh, is, is in there, the Gospel of John 99 times. So that you can, we're trying to tell you to believe, but what are we telling you to believe? The truth. This is true. So that's, Jesus is not something that you can neglect, John is saying. It's the truth. Now, the third most used word is the word world. Greek word cosmos. It's used 85 times. That's a lot. And, and, and God takes on flesh and the second member of the Trinity to enter into the world. That the offer to believe and save extends to the whole globe, not just certain kinds of people, not just the different these nationalities or these races or these genders or these whatever, but, but all people, the whole world. That's significant. And there's a line of demarcation between Jesus' people and the world. And so there's, that's a, a, a significant word in the gospel. Of John. Uh, the next word, life. The word life appears 61 times. Jesus calls himself the life, um, that he brings life to men, that John's trying to convince you that eternal life is only found through believing in Jesus. 61 times. Significant word. Love appears 57 times. Love is, uh, is twofold. God's love and the love of, of uh, God's people. So what's the only motivating factor whatsoever for John chapter 1 to ever happen? To God take on flesh and then dwell among us, to tabernacle among us. Love. What, what would be the only reason to pursue your stated enemies? Which, in this case, is all of humanity versus God. Romans 5 says we were his enemies beforehand. What was the only motivating factor? Love. And that word appears in John 20 times. So God's love, but not only God's love for us, but our love for each other. 
that we're brought into the eternal, unbroken love that exists in and amongst the members of the Trinity for, has forever, eternity past, present, and always. And then we're brought into that. And then that's how everybody's going to know that we're with Jesus. John 13, 34 and 35. That by our love for each other, they'll know that we are his disciples. The last word to key in on and look at, look at for, for us is the word light. 23 times. The world is dark. Jesus is the light. We can't see and behave according to what is true unless you're walking in the light. You're going to run into a tree. You're going to step on a Lego. You're going to walk into a corner. If it's the dark, if you're in the dark, you're not walking according to what is true. So you're going to, you're going to end up injuring yourself. You're in the dark. But the light comes and exposes everything that's there so that you can walk according to what is true. So those are six key words to look at through the Gospel of John. Now, the Gospel of John is also structured around seven miracles. John calls them signs. Um, it's the, uh, the Greek word semon. And, uh, or Simeon, and uh, seven miracles is all that he records. Seven miracles, 21 chapters. In, in the Gospel of Mark, in the first three chapters of 16, Jesus does seven miracles. But John structures everything around these seven miracles. There's technically eight. There's one in chapter 21, but that's after he's already stated his purpose at the end of chapter 20. But these seven miracles... They're, they're a, it's a sign that it's a circumstance, there's a context, there's a truth to teach us. And John, he milks these for as much as he can get out of them. Jesus does one miracle and then a long discourse, dialogue, situation develops afterwards in, in many cases. So the six miracles, the first one is water into wine in chapter two. Then in chapter four, um, you have the healing of the official's son. And then in chapter five, the paralytic is healed. Chapter six, there's two miracles, the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and then also Jesus walks on water. And then in chapter nine, the blind man's healed and a massive event happens after that. And then chapter 11 is kind of the pinnacle of the, the miracles that Jesus does for this part of the structure, which is the, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, why is John so sparse with miracles? I mean, if you think about it, I mean, they all have to be sparse to some extent because the, the, the New Testament says that if they recorded everything that Jesus did, it, there's not enough books to, to hold them in the world. So they got to be selective. But why is he more selective than the other gospel writers? Why, why isn't he including more miracles? Here's the reason why. You can see a miracle, you can be healed and be fed and still go to hell. John's goal is not to wow us. Wow, Jesus was powerful. His goal is to convince us that Jesus' power, as you can see in a miracle, that power, it can be manifest to save your soul from eternal judgment. That's what he's trying to convey. He's not, not, not that the other gospel writers are just trying to wow you, but John's purpose for trying to convince you to believe kind of diverts him from spending a lot of time and, and words on miracles because he's going to use a few of them and then expound on them for a lot longer. So another thing about the structure is we have some unique contributions about our understanding of Jesus that we get from John. We're not going to go in super in depth with these, but it's unique. We should know like, oh, that's where I want to go. When I learn about the new birth, John is the, is the, uh, the champion for the concept of the new birth. 
Now, the, that concept is elsewhere in the New Testament, the whole Bible, about regeneration, about when you, when you trust in Christ, you're, you're born again. You're, you're made new. Ezekiel says your dead stone-like heart is taken out, and you get a beating, fleshy one put in you when you're, when you're made new by faith. But John's the one who calls it the new birth. Peter picks up on it in his one, one of his epistles, talks about the new birth, being born again. But John spends an entire half chapter on the whole concept with Nicodemus talking about it. Uh, the concept of eternal life. Every other gospel talks about salvation um, as the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And John talks about it as eternal life. That terminology is pretty exclusive to him. Uh, the other, another unique contribution that we get about Jesus uh, is the I am statements. There's I am statements um, about Jesus that he says, I am the light of the world. I am the resurrection of life. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the bread of life. I am the vine, the true vine. And then the granddaddy of them all when he tells them, I am. And that's him saying, he is the covenant God of Moses, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who is. And that, that's the, the most blasphemous thing that any person could do now, and it's particularly in a, in a Jewish society then. Those, those statements Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. We also see, more so in the Gospel of John than any of the other Gospels, God's sovereignty in salvation. Jesus talks about this so much in chapter 6, chapter 10, uh, chapter 1, 3, 17, that he talks about God's sovereignty in salvation, that anyone who comes to him must be drawn by the Father. Nobody comes to him without being drawn first by the Father. That who, who makes the choice? And John makes it very clear that, that God does. The last thing that we get from John that helps our understanding of Jesus that's pretty unique to him is these long conversations and discourses that many of Jesus is in the synoptic gospels, his conversations or his, um, the moments where he's speaking and teaching are short and a little more rapid fire, a little more staccato, a little more like, ta -ta -ta, like they're parables or, or they're, uh, they're proverbs. Like, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Truly, truly, I say to you, he uh, who looks upon a woman with lust in his heart has committed adultery with her already. And, and that's, that's coming from Matthew, that those, those are a little more um, rapid fire. They're all true, but John takes one person's discussion, like Nicodemus or the woman at the well or the blind man that he heals in chapter 9, and he's going to have a longer interaction with them which is so amazing for us. We get to see Jesus really relating to people and how he would actually talk to people. Uh, in the other gospels, we get sermons, like Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, Sermon on the Plain in Luke. Um, and, but, but most of what we get is, and Jesus was teaching, and then this one guy interrupted and he said one thing and then moved on to the next moment. But, Jesus, but John expands these out, and it's helpful for us to understand our Savior even more. Um, and so the, the book outlines itself really easily. There's a, there's a prologue and an epilogue, so on either end of it, and then the, the middle of it is cut into two big halves. So the prologue is, you know, talking about Jesus being the Word made flesh is in chapter 1, 1 through 18. That's the, little, that's the opening um, 
preface in a sense, like here's what we're talking about and here's who he is. And then the first half of Jesus is, uh, or first half of John is one nineteen through the whole, all of chapter 12. And that's his public ministry, which culminates in him being rejected. He's doing all of this ministry out in public where everybody can see him and he's talking and he's interacting. And then it culminates with him being rejected by the people. Now the second big chunk in the middle is Jesus's upper room discourse with his disciples and what's called the passion narrative. Just the, the sequence of events that happened in his arrest, his trial, his beatings, his execution, and his resurrection. So that happens through chapters 13 and 20. So you have these two big halves in the middle, tiny prologue, and then a tiny epilogue at the end, kind of a closing statement. That's what all chapter 21 is, is that Peter gets reaffirmed after he denies Christ uh, or re-established, you know, restored, and then John the apostle is affirmed there at the end. Now, don't think that because John's gospel is so overtly evangelistic, we've been talking about that a lot, don't think that because he's overtly evangelistic that this Bible, that this book is thin on theology. A lot of times we think that. If there's two kinds of Christians in the world, just pick out which one you want to be. If you want to care about people and their needs and the lost and having them converted, then you can't be the kind of person who wants to think deeply, study the Bible, um, grasp theology. So just pick which one you want to be in, which camp fits you most, which church, find a church that kind of is like that or not. Um because you can't really be both. And John is the living refutation of that. He, he uses so much deep theology while still being way evangelistic, overtly, clearly, bluntly evangelistic, but he uses deep theology in the book as well. I mean, we learn about um, theology proper, which is just the study of God. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. How can that be? He just says it. He talks about Christology, the study of, of Christ, the study of Jesus. When he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, how can God put on flesh? John talks about that. He talks about pneumatology, which is a study of the Holy Spirit. When he says that I'm going to leave in John um, 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you all the things that are to come. He will glorify me. Oh, wow, that's a whole lot of truth about the Holy Spirit that John just gave us. He talks about soteriology. That's the study of salvation. That, that, he's talking about that all over the place. But that's not just repent and believe. There's a whole lot going on there. I mean, in a verse like John 5, 24, when Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes that hears the word of my Father and believes Him who has sent me has eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So now we're learning about our state being in death, and that salvation brings us out and crosses us over to life by belief. I mean, that's, that's theology. The other thing, oh, we get eschatology. That's the study of the end times, how things are all going to culminate, and it's, it's kind of happy stuff. John fourteen two and three. In my Father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. That's where we get that from. It's from John. Now, but then also, because there's lots of theology in John, 
and there's lots of evangelism in John, we can still think like, well, yeah, okay, I know I'm supposed to share the gospel. I know I'm supposed to learn and grow, um, you know, and be sanctified in my understanding of who God is and who I am in light of that and the theology around that. But what about just me living my life? That a lot of times we think that if you're going to be serious about the doing the work of the gospel, that means either thinking or speaking a lot, but it doesn't really involve just me. I mean, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mom or I'm a retiree or I'm a, I'm a guy working on, you know, nine to five job. Like, well, how do I live my life? We know the other places in the Bible speak clearly to that, but so does John because every word is profitable for us, for growth in Christ's likeness. Uh, and he talks about how do we evangelize? Chapter three and four, huge. Chapter three, how do you evangelize to a guy who thinks he already knows the gospel? Chapter four, how do you evangelize to a woman who knows that she's a sinner? I mean, how do we deal with animosity from the world? John 15 says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. This is what I'm calling you to, but look to me in that. I mean, how do we interact with other Christians? How do I get along with people who are in the faith? John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's how you get along with other Christians. How do we walk through painful seasons in life? That could be happening to us right now, actually, with all this coronavirus stuff. Jesus says in John 13 or 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. That's practical Christian living right there. How do we pray? John 16, 24. Up until now, you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you shall receive that your joy may be made full. How do I know my salvation is secure? I struggle with that. You might be saying John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You know who fits in that no one? You do. All other people, Satan fits in that category, but so do you, Christian. You can't snatch yourself out of his hand. And then how do we go about finding answers to the life's biggest questions when we're just perplexed, we're confused, we feel overwhelmed, ill-equipped, um, anything that happens in life like that when we're confronted, what's the truth? Well, Pilate asked that to Jesus in at John 18, 37 and 38. Pilate said to him, so you're a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Kind of a snark. Even back then, relativism and postmodernism of you have your truth and I have my truth was present. Or just the confusion. We don't even know what the truth is. But then, like I said earlier, John 17, 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's where we go for life's biggest questions. That's practical Christian living given to us by the gospel of John. So in conclusion, now that we've kind of re-upped ourselves with the Gospel of John, what I really want us to come into this study with is, and myself foremost among all, is a humility to say whatever I conceive of Jesus to be, 
I'm going to lay that down and let the Bible tell me what it is. This is, in a sense, what the Gospel of John can do for us is be a reintroduction to Jesus. I remember and still do feel shame and embarrassment for not knowing Jesus like I should. And then when you know that about yourself, you intentionally avoid situations where that could be brought to light. Whether they be evangelistic, I'm talking to my coworker, talking to my neighbor, talking to the other mom whose kid, where kids are on the same baseball team. I don't want to get into that very much because I know that I don't know who Jesus is. And it scares you on both sides. What if the person's very antagonistic and you don't have answers? What if the person is very shattered and needy and saying, tell me about it? And you can't. But let's let John teach us. Let's take him, Jesus, at his word and not superimpose our own created understanding of who Jesus is and honestly evaluate honestly evaluate our ideas. Where did I get that concept of Jesus? Was it from the Bible? Because if I can't point chapter and verse, then I have to let that go. I can only know the Jesus of the Bible because that's the only Jesus that can save me. And we gotta, gotta work hard to fight through kind of our preconceived notions and what we're indoctrinated with, what just comes out and kind of pop Christianity. Uh, we have to work through those things and let those contradictions be there and say, well, I'm going to lay that down because it's clearly saying something different about Jesus here in the Bible, and particularly the Gospel of John. So let's walk into this series with prayer, letting the Holy Spirit show me who my Savior really is. That's the one I want to know. The one I'm going to spend eternity with, I want to know him in fullness, not some version of him that I've created by my lack of understanding and the, of, of him in the Gospels and my own just desires of what I think a Savior should be like, especially one like Jesus. Because the popular idea of Jesus, if we're honest, the popular notion of an idea of Jesus is that's something that just about everybody can get on board with. Because what's the popular notion of Jesus? He's Mr. Rogers. Laid back, always loving, never gets mad. Um, all, welcomes everybody, judges no one. And, and there's lots of those things that maybe are kind of true ab about Jesus. And to an extent, of course he welcomes anyone, but only welcomes those who come to him in faith and, and in repentance of sin. And of, of course he, uh, he's kind. He is. But, but if we limit our understanding to just, snippets of Jesus, then we don't really have the one of the Bible. Because the kind of Jesus that's popularly imagined today doesn't get publicly executed by an angry mob and by a corrupted justice system. That you, you don't hang Mr. Rogers. You certainly don't nail him to the cross. You certainly don't ramrod his case illegally by your own laws through the court system and then demand that the, the magistrate of the land kill the guy after he refuses to kill him three times. You don't do that to Mr. Rogers. You do that to the coming Messiah. You do that to one who's speaking the unvarnished truth of God. 
and at the same time calling little children to himself. You, that's who you do it to. So let's let Jesus be who he is, and let's let John teach us who he is um, in part, because we need all of the Bible to teach us to it. Let's let John teach us who he is, and I think when we do that, we'll find a Savior who is strong enough to redeem you, who is merciful enough to forgive you, who is gracious enough to love you, and who alone is worthy of our worship. I think that's who we'll find, because that's who Jesus is. And I, and I want to have forever, someday I'm going to have a pulpit that has this written on it. But John 12, 20, towards the middle of, middle of the book, towards the end in John's account of Jesus' public ministry, some Greeks uh, learn who Jesus is, and they want to see him. So they come around the time of the Passover, it's a big feast, lots of people in town in Jerusalem, and they come. And then this is what they say in John 12, 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip. So they find one of Jesus' disciples, Philip. And they say, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And they asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. And the old King James says, sir, we would see Jesus. And I, I want that wood burned on the top lip of uh, my a pulpit one day. So that I don't ever get it twisted that people need to come and see me. Or I need to show them some kind of profound nuance. All of scripture points to Jesus and that's who we came to see. And I hope that that's our mindset as we study the Gospel of John together. And as you read the Gospel of John on your own, I'd encourage you to have that mindset of these faithful, humble Greeks who know they're not Jewish show up and they just ask Philip, we wish to see Jesus. That's what we're after. So that's our conclusion. Before we pray, I want to just make an announcement kind of about the next Sunday. Um, there's going to be an email coming out uh, in the early parts of next week. Hope Not too early, because if you get an email early on, then you forget about what's going on. So we'll, maybe to the middle of the week, we'll try to release it. Um, but we're going to do some things to get ourselves ready to reopen. Now, when I say reopen, what I don't want you to feel like, if you're still feeling uneasy about this, and you have young kids, or you are a caretaker for older folks, or you are yourself in that category of uh, the more vulnerable as it relates to coronavirus, COVID-19, then please hear us as your church, as your pastor, as your elders, as your whole congregation. Us opening up on Sunday is not us to make is not us make an attempt attempting to make a division between the faithful and the unfaithful. What it's not is let's see who's serious and let's see who's not serious about this faith. We're not doing that in the slightest. So please hear that. If you're wanting to just wait a little bit to see what it's gonna be like and and let kind of some weeks go by, some cycles run through. We get it. We understand. And the conclusion that I've come to, we've talked a lot as elders, um, and then I talked a lot to other pastors about this and other you know men who are involved in leadership as elders or just you know in some kind of leadership role at other churches, is that there doesn't seem to be a clear and obvious. Uh, reopen date in the sense like, well, if you just waited until 
November 1st, then everybody would come back all at once. That, that day just doesn't exist. We are really in pretty unprecedented times, uncharted waters. I look to history so much to just go and see like, hey, what did people do in the past? What did God's faithful men and women do in the past? And we don't have that <laughs> with something like this. This is just peculiar. So with the reopening on May 24th, next Sunday, that day has to come at some point. And there's never going to be a day where everybody comes back after something like this and they're just like, oh, fine. None of us care now all at once that that, that day's not going to be there. There's always going to be some early adopters. There's always going to be some who are a little more cautious. And so we just need to reopen at some point. We think we can reopen on May 24th. I know of other um, godly brothers who are leading churches as pastors doing the same kind of thing that are around our size and, and our um, beliefs, like our convictions theologically. They're going to do that, but we're all kind of coming into it with a really humble perspective. Like we don't, we don't really know um, what it's going to be like, what it's going to do. And different guys are convicted of different things, but um, we're, this is where we're going to do. We're going to reopen on next Sunday. So come if you want. No children's ministry. So the kids are going to be in there. So I'm going to make it as long and drawn out as boring. Oh, we're going to cut one song. I'm going to try to keep it down uh, the timeline, but we're going to understand the kids are there and that they're, they might make a little bit of noise and we're family. So that's okay. We'll, we'll get through that. God loves children. Uh, the promise he says, and, and from Genesis 12 to Acts 2 is to you and to your children. So we're not bothered by kids being in there. It'll, it'll maybe be a little distracting here and there, but you know what? We'll get back together again next week. Um, and we're going to keep doing this, this gathering called Church Till the Lord Comes Back. So we'll get to it. Um, so that's what we're going to do. That's, that's kind of the mindset behind it, the ethos behind it. We're going to keep live streaming um, like we always have. Um, but we'll keep doing it, but I'm just going to be able to look at at least maybe one face, maybe just my wife's face. I just can't look at my own face anymore. This is the worst. Um, so that's what we're going to do. We're doing a few things to get prepared. So we're going to have the building cleaned, professionally cleaned. Um, not that we think coronavirus is, you know, in the building, but let's just clean it. Let's just get a clean slate, have it, you know, so we can know that It'd bring a little more confidence to us gathering together. Uh, we're going to try to get uh, a stock of uh, cleaning supplies and, or things like hand sanitizer or wipes or things like that. It's going to be bring your own coffee. We're not going to make a kind of a community pot like we normally do. Uh, and we're not going to have communion for a little while. We're going to kind of ease back into that. And again, we don't think that that's um, sinful or wrong or anything like that. It's just going to make us long to to do that again when it's when it's safe. And also it makes us very aware of, man, we live in such a corrupt and fallen world because of sin that we can't even partake in, an, in a sacrament from God because of the sin in the world. Disease is a result of sin. Man, I can't wait for that, that day when it comes when we're no longer even participating in a sign. We're seeing the risen Christ face to face, not just remembering what he did. So that's what we're going to do in regards to that. Um, and we're going to space the chairs out a little bit. So we'll have some chairs set up maybe out in the, the foyer area um, and put a little more gap in between the rows inside the sanctuary and have families sit in groups 
a little bit of space in between, maybe a chair or two. Uh, so that's going to be the plan for now. And if you want to come and you come in a mask and gloves, come on. Welcome you. That's okay. Uh, we're we're going to just kind of do this together. It's just not going to be a pretty pristine opening. And that's okay. We, we can do that. We're the people of God. And, and he can see us through these kinds of things. And this is by far not the worst thing that these people have endured at other places in time and on the globe. We'll send out an email with all these kind of details and updates. And we're going to attach uh, the state government's kind of recommendations for all of that. Most of it's what we talked about. And most of it's common sense. If you feel sick, don't come. Um, but just to let you know that we are reading those things and we are taking those things into account. Because we, as your elders view this as a shepherding moment. I mean, all moments are shepherding moments, but how do we best shepherd the flock, which means taking care of um, physical, spiritual, emotional, all things as we do this. So we, we, we just want you to, to be very uh, aware that we, we're taking this seriously and we're not being flippant about it anyway. We're also not being fearful because we as human beings on the planet, we just have to account for a fair amount of risk that that's just part of life in a fallen world. I mean, otherwise we would all drive 30 on the highway. I would guarantee a lot more, uh, a lot less road fatalities, but we, we take into account a fair amount of risk as citizens, but also as Christians. Uh, we, we know that following Christ is, there's a risk involved. We read it earlier in John 15, the world's gonna hate us. And, and we're not really necessarily being super hated right now in the United States, but. We know that risk comes in following Jesus. He tells us to count the cost of discipleship. So we're going to do the best of balancing, knowing that we do factor in risk, but also that there is wisdom. You can be foolish and you can be stupid. So we don't want to do either one of those extremes. We want to walk the line of grace and truth, um, balancing those things as modeled by our Lord and Savior. So, that's the announcement at the end here. Well, again, we'll send out an email. Make sure you pass the word around. If you if you know and you don't think somebody else knows, then just let them know. Just tell them. Not everybody's getting the same info. Somebody might have already stopped watching because the sermon was over and they jumped off and went to have lunch. So pass the word around. We'll get an email going. Um, and then hopefully uh, we'll, we'll see some of you on Sunday. And those who are not there you'll see us uh see me at least through the live stream look forward to being with everyone again and getting a potluck going not this next coming sunday but man we gotta eat together that I, we just need to be around each other even if we all gotta wear our own hazmat suits we could at least hug each other with a hazmat suit on um look forward to that. let me pray for us and then we will be uh a closed father thank you so much for your word in the Gospel of John. Thank you so much for showing us so clearly that you transcend all things, our existence, our comprehension, time and space, because we can get so bogged down in the immediate and have no eye to the eternal. But the Gospel of John lifts our eyes off of the dirt and to you to your glory, to what you've called us to as Christians, to what you're calling the lost to, to believe that your son, that Jesus is your son and that faith in him 
is the only way for eternal life to be forgiven of sins. Lord, let us drink deeply from John. Let us pull everything out that we can. Uh, and we ask for your particular blessing on this really weird season in the life of all churches all across the globe of trying to figure out how do we come back together after a global pandemic like this. So we know it's unprecedented times. Lord, give us so much grace and kindness with each other um, and and just help us to figure out how to navigate again, handshaking and hugging and um, having kids play together and share toys in the nursery and, and all those things. Lord, we, we, we admit we don't know, but we know that you know. We know that none of this is um, surprise to you, that you have ordained these days and you've ordained us for these days. So strengthen us to rise to the level of faithfulness in this moment and let us be your church in your community uh, of believers globally, but then locally here in McKinney, Texas, help us to be your church faithfully and humbly and joyously knowing that you will come again and make all things new and eradicate evil forever. We look forward to that day. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.